Can I invite you to pray with me? Let's talk to God. Heavenly Father, as uh, we look at the Bible together tonight, uh, this afternoon, we, we want to take the words of Jesus seriously when in Luke chapter 24 he tells us that all of Scripture is about him, uh, all of the law and the Psalms and the prophets are about him and his life and death and resurrection and how repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to the ends of the earth. Father, we thank you that that message has come to us here on the other side of the globe thousands of years later. We thank you for calling us to continue that telling of that message. Uh, We pray now that as we look at Isaiah 7 and the first part of chapter 8, that you'd speak to us by your word about the Lord Jesus, that you'd open our eyes to see him, not just our eyes, but our hearts as well. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen. So I'm sure you you guys have probably all noticed the same thing that I have noticed when I go to the shops these days. It is October, but at the same time, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Uh, That's down at Coles. Everywhere you look at the moment, um, the fact is it's nine weeks away. Um, exactly nine weeks from today, chances are you will have, well, you'll probably be lying down on a couch somewhere moaning because your tummy's so full or, or however you celebrate Christmas. What I want to say this afternoon is that if you want to get the very best out of Christmas, I'm not just talking about turkey and lights and that kind of stuff, wonderful as it is, but if you want to really understand Christmas and have it enter into your life and change you, then you need to spend some time in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, Like a brand new set of batteries for your Christmas toys, understanding what the Old Testament says about the child in the manger will give power to your Christmas like you've not experienced before. And that's why over the next few months we're going to be spending some time in Isaiah, uh, in particular chapters 7 through to 12. Um, and uh, last week we did a little bit of a reminder of what had happened in the first six chapters. Today we, we dive in. So I want to tell you where we're headed today because this is a big passage uh, and you may have found it a bit confusing as we read through it. So the first thing I want to do is give us a bit of context for the passage and walk you through what's going on, who's who, what's happening. Then we're going to look at how this story fits into the bigger story of the whole of the Bible. And then finally, some implications on how Isaiah 7 and the promise of Emmanuel can change not just Christmas, but how it can change your life, change who you are. So I want to recommend uh, tonight especially that you take out your Bible, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles here provided at church, page 681, and open it up because... We're going to look and there's a lot going on there and rather than put up lots of verses on the screen, I'm going to have some other stuff on the screen that will help you make sense of what's there in the text. So uh, please open your Bible up to Isaiah chapter 7. And as we do that, we've got to remember we're traveling back in time now more than two and a half thousand years ago. And back at this time in the ancient world, the rising superpower was the Assyrian Empire. 
Um, what we read in Isaiah here is not make-believe stuff. It's not kind of nice religious writings. This is history. Uh, this is stuff that was really going on. You can visit places like the British Museum and you can see artefacts from exactly this kind of time in history. Uh, Fiona and I were fortunate enough to go there a few years ago and there's this, uh, as one of the famous things that they have there, this gigantic winged lion from... Uh, just a couple of generations before the time Isaiah is writing. And this is a symbol of Assyrian might and power. By the time Isaiah is around, the Assyrian army is sweeping down uh, from the northeast. You can see them up there. They're coming down and threatening uh, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel and Aram. And they're the the kingdoms that we're going to be thinking about, especially in Isaiah 7. So what I want to do, go from that big map, which gives you the bigger context, to a smaller map and a little table that kind of lays out who is who and how different names relate to different things. So you can see there are three kingdoms here that are under threat from the Assyrians. Uh, Down the bottom in the south, yellow on the map, the dark yellow, is the kingdom of Judah, That's where Isaiah is. Uh, The capital city of Judah is Jerusalem. And you can see that Ahaz is the king of Judah. Immediately to the north of Judah is the kingdom of Israel. That's the blue one. Um, Their capital city is Samaria. And their king is Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Now, you might remember from your Bible history, uh, King David, under King David, the 12 tribes of Israel were united as one nation, then his son Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom split in two, 10 tribes to the north with their capital city at Samaria. That's the kingdom of Israel that you see there in the blue. And there's one other nation that's caught up in this passage that we're looking at. That's the kingdom of Aram with their capital city in Damascus. And pressing down upon all of them from the north is the Assyrian Empire who are growing in power. Now what happens politically in a situation like that, a couple of small nations like these? Well, if you're in a small country and you want to resist the invaders who are on their way, you need to form alliances with other nations so that together you can hold them back. And that's the context of what's going on in this passage. That's exactly what happened. Israel and Aram, we see, have joined forces to resist the Assyrians. They want to be able to count Judah in as well. They want Judah to be as part of that alliance. But uh, Ahaz, king of Judah, said no to them. And so they try to take Judah by force, but they're unsuccessful, but they're still threatening. And that's the context. That's what's going on here. The, the Assyrians are coming down from the north. Between Judah, down in where Isaiah is, uh, and the Assyrians, is this alliance between Israel and Aram. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, is trying to work out who's he going to side with? Who shall he rely on? Should he roll over for the Assyrians and strike some kind of a treaty with them now, early on, in order to avoid war? Or should he sign up to be part of the rebellion, the resistance with Israel and Aram? And that way, avoid them invading uh, Judah. Or, there's a third option, and the third option is what Isaiah is arguing for. Should he trust God? Uh, Should he trust God? the God, the 
the God of his forefather, David, King David, and rely on the promises that God had made to protect his people. That's the situation that's going on here. Now let's read through uh, fairly quickly and I'll show you how it fits together. So if you're looking at your Bible, verses 1 and 2, they describe the political situation. Uh, This northern alliance are threatening to invade Judah and they're making the people of Judah worried. They're kind of shaking like the leaves on trees. If you want to translate that, uh, it's like the people of Judah are suddenly buying canned goods and they're checking the supplies in their air raid shelters. They're worried that an invasion's coming. In verses 3 through to 9, God sends Isaiah, along with his son, to go and speak to the king. And the king is at the aqueduct checking out the city's water supply. He wants to make sure Jerusalem's got plenty of water. In other words, he is also buying canned goods and checking out his air raid shelter. Well, the the shelter for the city. So that's the context of Isaiah and his son talking to the king. And what's God's message to the king? Have a look at verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart on account of those threats coming from the north. Those two kings, they're nothing more than a couple of smoldering cigarette butts. They're going to fade out before you know it. Stay calm. Don't lose heart. The same message carried on in verses 7 and 8 and 9. God says, they're threatening you, but it's not going to happen. Okay, those kings... They're just men. Yes, there's a kingdom and there's a capital city, but really they're they're just a couple of guys. And pretty soon their kingdoms are going to be overrun. Don't side with them. Ahaz, here is what you need to do. Here's the message coming from God. You need to trust in me. Trust in the promises I made to your forefather, David. Have a look at verse 9 in the text. I'm going to put this one up on the screen. The second half of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And what's interesting about that verse in the original language in Hebrew, um, there's this really clear play on words, this pun. It's a kind of rhyming thing, a little one of those things that's really catchy and you read it and you go, yeah, that's, that's the killer line in the speech, the thing that you're supposed to remember, which shows that, us that this is really what's important. This is the big question in the whole passage. The question is, will King Ahaz trust God or will he put his trust in an alliance with one of the other nations? Will Ahaz stand firm in his faith or if he gives up on his faith in God, he's doomed to falling over? Um, one of the things, I, I want to give you a little bit of a tip now. Uh, when you're reading Isaiah over the next few weeks, one of the things that's really useful to do is remember that Isaiah does not exist with no other context or connection. Um, Isaiah is describing events in the history of Israel that are also described in other parts of the Old Testament. And so there's plenty of background information about the kings of Israel and Judah in books like Chronicles and Kings. And so you can Flick back there and leaf your way through and find out about the kings. And so you can read about King Ahaz of Judah in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. When you look it up there, there are a couple of things that stand out really quickly. Number one, um, Ahaz was pretty young when this was happening. He became king when he was 20 years old. 
This is all happening while Pico is still king of Israel. So it's between the age of 20 and 24. He's a young guy. Second thing that you'll learn is that Ahaz was not like his ancestor, King David, who was a man after God's own heart. Uh, the scriptures say Ahaz did not follow in the ways of his forefather, David. He did not trust God. He wasn't interested in trusting God at all. In fact, it describes his worship of other gods in uh, Ahaz doing some of the most outrageous and detestable things imaginable, including sacrificing his own children in the worship of other gods. So you can see what kind of a person Ahaz is. And so when you read what happens next in Isaiah, you'll understand why all the commentators say that Ahaz isn't being genuine. So have a look. God offers Ahaz a sign, verse 10, and Ahaz says very piously, Oh, no. No, I won't ask for a sign. I would never put the Lord my God to the test. <laughs> um, he's, that's not for real. This is a politician's answer. He is saying the words that he thinks other people want to hear that are going to make him look good. But what's really going on for Ahaz is he doesn't want to trust God. And if he says, oh, sure, God, give me a sign, then he's going to have reason that he has to trust in the Lord. So he would rather not have the sign so he doesn't have a reason to trust God. He's already made up his mind. In fact, if you read in Kings and Chronicles, you'll see that he does make an alliance with the Assyrians. However... We're back in Isaiah. Ahaz is not going to get let off easily by saying, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't test God. God tells him there is a sign coming anyway. It's in verse 14, that famous verse that's part of the nine lessons and carols and we often hear at Christmas time. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, I think many of us know that the name Emmanuel means, in Hebrew, God with us. And that name is significant. The meaning of that name is significant for what's going on in this passage. See, here's the thing. Ahaz does not need to form an alliance with Assyria. He doesn't need to form an alliance with Israel or um, Aram. What he needs to do is stick with God because God has said he will be with him. God is with us, with his people. God can be counted on to keep his promises that he's made in the covenant that he made with his people. And in those promises, in those promises, you've got to realize that God also promised if the king rejected God, then there would be judgment as well. And so if you look from verses 16 and 17 going onwards, uh, that's exactly where things turn. Uh, pretty soon, the two kings that you've been worried about in the north, God says, they're going to be overrun. Then Isaiah says, because you've turned away from God, God is going to bring bad times to the kingdom of Judah as well. Okay, He's going to bring to you the king of Assyria, and not in a good way. Uh, the rest of the section describes just how bad it is going to be. The Assyrian army, for example, is going to swarm in like bees that get into every crevice. They're everywhere. You can't get rid of them. Or another description, they're going to be like a sharp razor that will cut off the pride of, of the men. So shave their heads, cut off their beards like prisoners of war. 
Things are going to be so bad in Judah as a consequence of this that there'll be no farming land anymore. They won't be able to till crops. Uh, It'll just be briars and thorns. And all that people will have are a couple of goats and a cow and they'll have to survive on honey and cottage cheese. Now, those themes of judgment are repeated again at the beginning of chapter 8 in those 10 verses. In a few short years, Israel and Aram will have their plunder carried away. That's the significance of the name of this new son born to Isaiah and his wife. Uh, His name means swift to the plunder uh, or quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Uh, In a few short years, Israel and Aram, but by the time this kid can say mum and dad... Israel and Aram are going to have their plunder carried away. But also the people of Judah, because their king has rejected God's promises, the Assyrian army is going to roll into them like floodwaters, bursting over the banks of a river, rising up and up, getting into everywhere, right up to their necks. (coughs) But only to their necks. Because God is not going to forget his promises and wipe them out completely. God is with his people, even if it's only just a handful of people who still trust him. Do you remember at the end of Isaiah chapter 6, you can have a look at it, it's there on the page, isn't it? It talks about how things are going to be so bad, it's like a forest is chopped down, but from the stump of the tree will grow a little shoot, a little remnant of faithful people, and God will begin again with that remnant. In fact, God is with them. And that's how the, pas- the passage finishes. Um, Isaiah is saying the nations can make all the plans that they like, but in the end, it's God who's in control. In the end, it's God who's going to be victorious. They can prepare for battle, but they'll just be shattered by God. And then you get verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10, I, I read those as the defiant cry of that small handful of people who are standing firm in their faith despite the decisions of the king these are the ones who know what it means that god is with us these are the ones who know that they don't need an alliance with assyria or israel or aram or with anyone else god is with us they say even though they can't see him even though the god of the people of judah is the invisible god They know that he is with them. That is the hope that they are going to hang on to. And I think a lot of you get what that's like, don't you? You get what it's like to hang on to hope in a God who you cannot see. Paul, um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about us walking by faith and not by sight. Uh, The God we worship is not a God who we see, who we can reach out and touch. But he is with us. That's the hope that we have. And this this idea of of seeing God somehow, but, but especially of God being with us, that's one of the really big themes that runs through the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. And when the Bible starts with the Garden of Eden, God is there in the garden with the first man and with the first woman. They can hear him. They hear his footsteps as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. 
But when they turn away from God and when they make their own decisions, when they decide that they're going to figure out what's right and what's wrong, Genesis chapter 3 says they are sent out of the garden. They're sent away from God's presence. They're told, you can't come back here anymore. And of course, what that is demonstrating, what that's picturing for us is that they are not with God anymore and God is not with them. That's the first three chapters of the Bible. The rest of the story of the Bible is the story of how humanity can connect with God again, be with God again. You fast forward right to the last couple of chapters of the Bible and you read this. But the problem is man and woman set, uh, set apart from God, not able to be with God. You get to the very end and you read this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. At the very end of the Bible, that problem in Genesis 3 has been overturned and we will be with God and he will be with us. That's where it's all headed. But what about right now? What about where we live right now? It's one of the things we struggle with, isn't it? Like I said, we can't see God. He's not visible to us in the way that a lot of other things in this life are visible, things that we can do and touch and smell. But we need to trust him somehow. So it's also into a similar situation that, that Isaiah chapter 7 comes. And I think it's really interesting that in Isaiah chapter 7, you've got a lot of imagery that takes us back to the Garden of Eden and what happened there in Genesis chapter 3. So here is a king who, like Adam and Eve, is experiencing good times, the blessing of God. Yet, like Adam and Eve, he reaches out to grab hold of independence from God. He wants to do his own thing. And just like you see in Genesis chapter 3, the various curses for sin, including a, a curse on the land where there are going to be thorns and thistles, we're told that because Ahaz would rather make an alliance with the Assyrians than put his trust in God, there will be thorns and thistles in the land of Judah, ruining everything, making life hard. Here in in Judah, in Isaiah chapter 7, we have another picture of this sin-broken world. But into that sin-broken world comes God's promise, his sign, a virgin who conceives and gives birth to a son, a son who is God with us. The promise made through Isaiah is fulfilled in its completeness around 735 years later when God came to be with us in an extraordinary way, be with us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Matthew's Gospel records it like this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, so there it is, the virgin, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. All of this took place, so we're now in verses 22 to 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What the New Testament is saying is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God with us, walking on the earth, the invisible God made visible. This idea of God with us, which was something to live by faith in Isaiah's time, has suddenly in history become something that is, you can touch him, you can see him, you can meet him down at the shops for a cup of coffee. In fact, so visible that if you could go back in time and if you had the technology, you could take an ultrasound of Mary's belly and you would have seen God's heartbeat. From invisible to visible. That's what happens with the birth of Jesus. God with us is is suddenly very concrete and very real. So, how does that change your Christmas and how can it transform your life? Lots and lots we could say. There's, there's a lot going on here, but let me just talk about one word for you. I think here, here is where the key is for us. That one word is alliances. You might not realize it, but you're forming alliances every day. Um, it might be something simple like the alliance you've made with coffee to get you started in the morning. So you say, coffee, I will keep buying you and ingesting you. And I'm relying on you to help me survive the first two hours of the morning. But there are other alliances we make, alliances that are much more important. Um, We shake hands with all kinds of masters as we make our way through life, hoping that they are going to protect us from the things that we fear and the things that we feel ashamed of. So, for example, we don't want to be lonely. So what do we do? We form an alliance with doing everything that we can to make sure people are going to like us. Because if they like us, they'll be with us, won't they? Or if we worry about what's going to happen if we don't measure up to the success of our peers, our friends, our family, our workmates, then we make alliances with things like overwork and perfectionism. Because we want to make sure that we're not left behind. We worry about rejection and we make a pact with the approval of others. We're making alliances all the time with my comfort, with the happiness of my children, with alcohol, with pornography, with making sure I'm never contradicted. All of these things which we hope are going to protect us. See, we we tell ourselves we need protection from these things out there that we fear like the nagging sense of failure or the overwhelming pressure of the situation we find ourselves in. We, we feel under threat from all sorts of directions. And so we make alliances with the things that we think are going to help us get through and keep us safe. Just like Ahaz did with Assyria. He wanted to keep things safe, so he made an alliance. In his commentary on this section of Isaiah, Barry Webb has one little sentence that really stood out for me. It cuts through to the heart of what our problem is. Reflecting on what's going on in Isaiah 7, he says, whatever we rely on instead of trusting in God will eventually turn and devour us. Now that was uh, Isaiah's warning to King Ahaz, wasn't it? He said, 
you want to make an alliance with the Assyrians to protect you against Israel and Aram, go ahead, but you should go ahead knowing fully that one day Assyria, with whom you've made the alliance, is going to come and they are going to turn and devour you as well. And the same thing's true for us. The things which we make alliances with turn out to be terrible masters. If you've made an alliance with making sure you have the approval of others, that's something that is never going to be satisfied. You will never know if you've done enough to keep the approval of other people. If the deal that is going to fix things for us and make our lives safe and secure is the happiness of our children, then you may succeed at that, you might not succeed at that. There are two things I can tell you about that, though. You can never completely control your children, that's one of them. And the second one is, if you try to control your children, they will not be happy. If you've made an alliance with alcohol, you already know that it's slowly destroying you. Just like the Assyrians, anything that we rely on, instead of trusting God, will eventually turn and devour us. So how do you change that in your life? Well, the answer for us is the same answer that was given to Ahaz. The answer for us is Emmanuel. The answer for us is Emmanuel. You have to know and believe that if you belong to Jesus Christ, then God really is with you through everything, no matter what. He truly is with you. And if he is with you, you can depend on him. You can turn to him. He is strong enough to carry you. So as you come to him, as you drink more deeply from his word in the Bible, he will provide more and more satisfaction, more and more comfort, more power and more joy. Because God himself, who is with us, is an endless source of compassion and mercy and power and grace. Now, that might sound good, but you say, how do I do that? I mean, I feel God is with me, sure, but I feel like God is far away from me. How do I trust him? I can't see him. Well, same answer. Start with Emmanuel. Start with Jesus. Start with God in the flesh. The invisible God made wonderfully visible at real time in history when God came into this world. Start with Christmas. It's the right season for it, isn't it? In your mind and in your heart, settle on all of the things that it means for the infinite, almighty, all-knowing God in the person of the Son. Think of what it means for him to have made himself finite. In fact, tiny. A little embryo in the womb of a young woman. And powerless, completely dependent. Think about and meditate on these things that are part of what the, the promise of Emmanuel looks like in the person of Jesus. And as you do that, ask God to grow in you a, a wonder and a love that will refresh your soul. That will help you to see more and more how good and great and wonderful God is. And so as your heart starts being able to love and trust him more and more, 
then you can also start to break those other alliances that you've made. See, if Ahaz knew really that God was with him, he wouldn't have gone to Assyria. And if he trusted that God was with him, he could have turned away from his alliance with Assyria. And it's the same for us. When we know that God really is with us and for us, then we can break those other alliances. We can trust in him because whatever we rely on instead of trusting in God is going to eventually turn and devour us. The good news is, in the promise of Emmanuel, we can know that God really and truly is with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he proves that you are with us. And that when we think about what it means that you came into the world in the flesh like that, we see how deep and wonderful and amazing you are, your love for us is, your majesty is. So please help us to, as we turn our attention to Jesus, especially in this lead up to Christmas, help us to grow in our love for you and our trust for you so that we might break down those other alliances, those other things that we've relied on in life and turn our attention back to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.